This is an excellent rally for the Cannonball. And oh, wow. Welcome to the Two Doc Chronicles, your one solution to all things squash. I'm Bruce Huberman with co-host Miles McIntyre, here to reveal a game with stories worth listening to. Welcome to the Two Doc Chronicles, episode number two, season two, entitled Enter the Lion's Den with Coach A. That's Paul Asiante, the legendary Trinity squash coach. We also have two special guests, Simba. Muate and Manek Mather, who are both star players during the amazing streak, and who are going to share their experience and relationship with the coach during their stay. This episode of the Two Doc Chronicles is brought to you by RIA Eyewear. RIA was founded by two time U.S. National Squash Champion Chris Hansen to build squash eyewear that doesn't fog, doesn't break, and doesn't move so you can get the most out of your performance. We spotted the recently crowned college individuals champion, Victor Quan from Harvard, sporting him during his championship run. So go out and check them out at riaiwear.com. That's R-I-A-I-Wear.com and use the code 2DOT to get $10 off your first pair. They are total game changers. Again, it, it's an honor to have uh, Coach Asante with us today. Um, his pathway to uh, greatness was not always easy and there were a lot of obstacles in his way, but uh, his career has been stellar and that's, and that's definitely uh, an understatement. So welcome to the show, Paul. Uh, we're honored to have you. Um, uh, the honor is really mine. Well, <laughs> that's, it's great. So um, your history um, in terms of you grew up in uh, New York, in the Bronx. And my father right across, grew up on Pelham Parkway. Oh, uh, wow. I was right across the street from Yankee Stadium. That's great. Yeah. And uh, so tell us a little bit about your upbringing and, you know, your parents and maybe some of the influence they had on you early yeah. on. Yeah, well, I was born in the Bronx. Uh, you know, typical uh, Italian family. Uh, parents were, you know, probably a little too involved, but uh, my father was my best friend and, and, you know, my mother, you know, having an Italian son, I think she was pretty convinced that the uh, Michelangelo sculpture, David was really done in my likeness rather than the other way around. I do <laughs> no wrong. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and God knows back then there was, you know, no squash or anything, but I grew up there and we escaped into suburbia when I was 13. We moved to Pearl River, New York, and I was the smallest kid in the class and really just a peanut. And so I, uh, I started doing gymnastics in high school and ended up going to Springfield College to be a gymnast. And uh, so that was really my um, 
my beginnings, I knew as a sophomore in high school, for some reason, that I was going to be a coach. I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. It's, you know, it's so interesting. I was speaking last week to a friend who's dying of cancer, and we were talking about finding your purpose in life. And that's as the most important thing. And um, I always knew my purpose was to, to be teaching lessons through sport. That was going to be what I was going to dedicate my life to. And as I've gotten older, I, that's become a much more pure um, vision for me. I, I, I understand that's, and it doesn't matter what, you know, when you look at my, my career, um, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, I lived my whole life with the uh, imposter syndrome, if you will, in that I was always somewhere where I shouldn't be. And I, my motivation was to prove people wrong. You know, I went to college because my guidance counselor told my parents I wasn't college material. And, um, you know, I went out for the gymnastics team and I got cut by my coach three times. I wasn't a good listener. And then, you know, I end up at West Point and yeah, I mean, just, just go back one second. And it's an interesting, uh, um, when you went, when you, when you tried out for the team, you know, you weren't, you know, you got cut, but you were persistent. You kept showing up to the practices and then they made you yeah. the manager of the team. So well, there I, are, yeah, there are moments in life where. I've said things that I don't know where that came from. It was like somebody else took over my voice. He, he said to me, um, you're, we're gonna, you're not good enough to be on the team. We have to cut you. And I said, well, you can't. And he said, what do you mean I can't? And I said, well, I'm going to come back every day. And he said, well, then I'll make you the manager. And, and I don't know why I said that. I, that's so unlike me. <laughs> and, and I kept coming back. I kept coming back. I trained with the team for two years. The gymnastics team there was very, very good. And the morning that the team was flying off to the national championships, my sophomore year, the coach called me to wake and woke me up. He said, do you want to go to the championships? And I said, well, why? And he said, well, the national champion defending high bar um, didn't get his haircut. So we're leaving him home and we're taking you. And I finished 13th in the country in my first competition. And which so, which is incredible. Well, they were good. So I was in a gym with better people than me all the time. Um, but, you know, it's just been that kind of a thing. And, um, you know, I, they, the Olympic team was training at West Point that summer. And I was up there training with them and they said, listen, in two years, um, there's going to be a job opening. Do you want to come to West Point and, and coach gymnastics? And I said, sure. And uh, I arrive and they say, uh, okay, now you're going off to Fort Dix, New Jersey. And I said, why? And they said, didn't anybody tell you the assistant coaching positions or enlisted positions? And it was like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. I went to college so that I didn't have to go into the Army. My draft <laughs> number was four. And now you're telling me I'm going off to Fort Dix, New Jersey? <laughs> so I ended up there. And then I came back to coach gymnastics. And I got hurt. And I, it wasn't, it was a bad injury. And I thought, geez, I got to take up some other activity. What can I take up? And so I was kind of drawn to tennis. 
And believe me, tennis is a lot easier than gymnastics. So I got pretty good at tennis very quickly. And the tennis coach at the time was a world-class tennis player. Ron Holberg. Ron Holberg. He had beaten he had beaten uh, Rod Laver at the Junior Wimbledon. And he quit. And again, one of those stupid things, I applied for the job. I had no right getting that job. And they offered it to seven other people. They all turned it down because they didn't want to run with cadets at five in the morning. I thought, well, this is great. I don't, I don't mind that. I'll do that. So they, they said, God, we got to hold our nose and give this kid the job for a year because there's no one else. And they took me downstairs to the second floor. And they said, and coach, this is a squash court. And you're now the head squash coach. I, I didn't even know those courts were in the building. So well, it was interesting how that was a, you know, sort of a stipulation. Yeah. Tennis and tennis squash. Yeah. And so I watched the first practice and I, and, and one of the things I learned from Billie Jean King was never pretend to be something you're not. And I watched the first practice and I said, guys, I have no idea what you're doing. I don't know what those lines on the walls are or anything, but it looks like fitness is a big deal. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make you the most fit team in the country, and you're going to teach me the game of squash. And that's how my squash career started. And back then, no one from that went to West Point had ever played squash before. So my pitch to them was, after their plebe first year fall tennis season, I said, okay, you have two options now. You can learn this wonderful game called squash rackets. Or you can box intramurals, you pick. <laughs> so they all came to squash and, and we were pretty good. So was um, Coach Parcells and Bobby Knight there when you were there? I got there right after Knight left. Um, as you know, um, he took the job. Right? Yep. Yeah, and I just, so my, I lived on Coach's Road. Um, my neighbors were all so much more qualified than I am even today. My neighbors were Mike Shazewski, um, Jack Riley, who was the 1960 Olympic gold hockey winning coach. Wow. Uh, Dan, Dan Riley, who became the strength training coach for the Redskins. Um, these were like legends. Um, and here I am, this, you know, make-believe coach living on Coach's Road. Wow. Maybe well, there's that- some... Maybe there's some special spirits on that road because they ended up making you into a legend as well. So, <laughs> well, well, you know, Miles, there's a um, there is a plaque on the wall that will resonate with you at the gymnasium at West Point, and it really solidified my career path. It's a quote from MacArthur, and it is on the friendly fields of strife are sown the seeds that on later fields will bear the fruits of victory. That was the yeah. whole deal for me. You learn more on the athletic fields than you learn anywhere else. You, you know, chemistry is important, but you, in athletics, you learn how to win. You learn how to lose. You learn how to strategize. You learn how to adjust on the fly. You have to accept the fact that someone just might be better than you, or at least better than you on that day. These are huge. You learn that it's not okay to lose your cool. You know, we live in a world where everyone's losing their cool. Road rage, people are walking around with guns. In athletics, you learn that's not okay. And so that really pushed me forward. Yeah. So what, uh, 
you know, prompted you to end up leaving West Point? It sounds like you had yeah. a gig. Yeah. Well, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I'd still be there. Right. Because but I thought that to be successful, I went into the private sector for a while because there's just so much money to be made there. And but that money never drove me. So I jumped into a pond ultimately that didn't wasn't satisfying for me. Um, and then I went back into coaching. But, you know, I used to think that to be all my friends were like Dave Fish, the great coach at Harvard and Bobby Bayless, who was at Navy and then retired at Notre Dame. And I used to think to be a successful coach, you needed to have banners and national championship rings. But now I know that the measure of a coach is not where you finish. It's how far along the path you take them. And so it's easy to say that when you have 17 banners hanging outside your office. But the truth is, it's the coaching. It's the it's the driving in a snowstorm together. It's the, do you remember when the week of nationals, three guys caught COVID? Those are the things, you know, the reason you're interviewing me is because we've won 17 championships and we went 13 years without losing even one match. But truth is, none of that matters. Not, not to me what matters to me are the relationships that i've been fortunate enough to have by shared time with these guys and those lessons will echo into eternity as long as they keep those messages going forward well i i think you you know for all the players that you've coached and all your you know assistant coaches and all the contacts and the people you met have influenced you and as well as you influence them. I mean, it, it's really just a, a learning process that you're still involved with, which is amazing. I mean, you never stop learning. You, I mean, I think you suck it all in and you take a little bit from everybody, but you're your own, you know, you calculated in your mind how you're going to take that and, and bring it forth. And uh, so, I mean, you're, you're, the book was just, I mean, I read it again because I read it a long time ago. And the second time you read it is just, it right. really makes I, a lot more sense. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying yeah. that. It was, it was, you know, that book took several, it took seven years to write with Jim Zug, who's a beautiful writer. And it had many iterations. You know, we started it off as a how-to book. Well, nobody's going to read a how-to book from Paul Asiente and Squash. And then we decided, well, we're going to make it, uh, the, you know, the second most sold book in history is The Art of War by Sung Soo. And we were going to, you know, we were going to do that. And then we thought, well, that's not going to fly. And then, so ultimately what we settled on was we were going to do a book that had three components to it. One, life lessons through sport. Everybody talks about that. The second is learning how to manage fear. And the third was an apology to my three grown children because I really wasn't there for them when they were growing up. And I needed to come public and let them know that. And ironically, Bruce, um, what I admit openly in that book is I, I had no work-life balance, right? I was married to my job. And yet now when I speak to companies or universities or the Patriots or the Red Sox, I'm the expert on work-life balance. Everybody wants to, to read the book. I admit it. I had none. But I have some now. And I learned that lesson. And um, so, yeah, um, thank you for saying that about the book. 
um, a group from Hollywood have bought the rights to it and they're busy in the process of trying to make that into a movie, which will be crazy if that actually happens. You know, something, wow. I, I think, I think Miles could, you know, has the, uh, the look, he could be, you know, have no a question. And he knows yeah. how to play squash. So. Yeah. Miles, you're an easy guy to hate because you're good looking and you're good at what you do. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's actually really cool though, that they're trying to make it in a movie or that yeah, it's an no, idea. It's, I, I think that would be fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, Miles. So, yeah, you know, it's it's a case of what's the point? And, um, and the point is it's shared time with people who hopefully take those messages forward. Um, and so that's, that's what it's all about. And so your philosophy really hasn't changed. It's just adapted and, um, but I think it, the common thread through the book is your approach and the way you handled, you know, the players. And, and it's really, it was state of the art because I think, you know, Miles has been through it and he's got a lot to, you know, to ask you, but um, it's just when, when, when you look at like players today and they're not implementing some of the stuff that you were talking about years ago. And it's sort of like was pushed off to the side. Yet I think, I mean, it would have been great, you know, if you were involved with my son early on, because some of the stuff that you talk about, especially, you know, running from the roar um, yep. is, is so pertinent to now, because I think that's the really like the missing link is really the psychology of, of the player and sure. the mindset, which is, you know, everyone can have the fitness, everyone can have the talent, but it's really what separates the greats yeah. is the mind and yeah. the ability. And, Sorry. Well, one thing along that yeah. before you ask, Miles, um, I, I think it's important that in any walk of life that you constantly evolve and change with the times. Um, and the successful people do that. You know, when I speak to companies, it's about, you had a great year last year? Well, that's very nice, but that's not going to work this year. You just need to know that. Um, if, if uh, you know, you won the national championships last year, if you do that again this year, you won't win the national championships. You've got to move with the times. Chizewski, if for all that he did and didn't do, he, was, he evolved. What he was doing at the end was not what he was doing at the beginning. And, you know, one and done recruiting or whatever it was. And believe me, the students I'm coaching today are different, dramatically different than they were even five years ago, never mind 40 years ago. And, and um, some of that is really cool, and some of that is really troubling. And I'm writing another book now, and the, and the title of the book is What's the Point? Because my big concern is that we are destroying a generation of young people by not giving them enough ownership over their journey. Last week, I spoke at the Greenwich Field Club, and um, I talked to the kids about, you know, I used an Oreo cookie analogy. And then I talked to the parents, and I said, please, let them fail. Let them fall. Let them skin their knees. When two people walk on a squash court, everyone wins. One person outscores the other, and the person who got outscored learns. 
let them learn the lesson of losing. Let them learn. The, and we're not doing that. In the name of love, we'll do anything to make sure that Susie Sunshine doesn't lose or hurt her feelings or skin her knee. And so what do you learn from losing? You learn resilience. Well, if we have a generation of people who have no resilience, what are we going to be as a society in 20 years? It's really concerning to me. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's crazy. Like through my journey in squash and looking back on it now, um, applying it to my life, I've realized that the times I've won the most are the times I'm actually losing the most. Because every time I'm losing or every time I'm being challenged and failing, is when I'm really adapting and like changing the way or callousing my mind. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning how to deal with the conflict. Um, and, and I always think back to this. It, it's a, it's a tough subject for me. Um, just because of like the journey that he and I've had, but my dad and I, he was my coach growing up. And then, you know, I would get on court, I'd start crying on court or I was throwing tantrums when I was younger and I couldn't deal with him. Like I, I for some reason, um, I, I had like th this terrible relationship with him as the son and coach. And I think a lot of it, like you just said, um, Paul, is because he didn't want to see me fail. And I could feel that. And it was, you know, it's, it's a two-way street. So part of it was my fault as well. But it never changed until the day that I told him, Dad, I'm sorry, but like, I, I, you're not coming to another match. And it was so hard because he was my coach. Like he would walk me to practice every day and feed me balls in the morning before school. And then after school, he'd bring me to the courts at 8 p.m. and I'd play at Andover. And it was like, this was my coach and I was and my dad. And I was telling him, you can't come anymore. Um, and but that's really when I started to learn because I started to fail without that support of like, mm -hmm. OK, well, we're going to go back to the court. It was like, okay, I just failed. Now I want to go back to the court to improve. And I'm sure you've seen that with multiple players that you've had over the years. Sure. And especially the guys um, across seas who maybe didn't have the same, yeah. the same pampering and, and, and hand-holding along the way. I don't know if yeah. you want to touch on that at all now. But. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I, I've been doing this for 45 years. The people that come to college today look more put together than they've ever looked before. Perfect. Present so well. The first time they face adversity, they fall into a million pieces. I'm seeing more cheating than I've ever seen before because they can't deal with failure. I'd rather cheat than get an F, but the F is an accurate measure of your knowledge of the information. Why can't you accept that? And it's unbelievable because mommy and daddy aren't here to hold their hands and do it for them or pay somebody to tutor them or take an SAT for them or whatever it is out there. And it's really uh, troubling. Um, and I am concerned. And, and that's why I'm, this is my, this is my platform now. This is the messaging. It's interesting. I did a uh, panel, the eminent sports psychologist in the world, that I have ever met is Dr. Jim Lair. Jim is a rock star. So I did a panel with him in Philadelphia. It and it and it was so moving. We were at the Shipley School, and there were 500 parents there. And he has a blackboard or a whiteboard, and he gets up and he says, "Okay, when your child was born, give me the big three: 
what were you hoping for your child? You count the fingers and toes. I hope my child is healthy. I hope my child is happy. You know, these things. Okay, now, you decide to have your child take up an extracurricular activity. What were the big three? Uh, develop confidence through an activity. Learn how to play nice in the sandbox. And then he says, okay, now between then and now, where did you collectively lose your minds? Because the reason you have them doing what they're doing is so that they can get into a better college. That's not what this is all about, but that is the focus. And many people out there even think of it as an investment. I want to recapture my investment, ROI, return on my investment. So Johnny gets into a better school and it's all upside down. And it's, it's, I don't mean to be, you know, Mr. Negative, but it is concerning for me now. And that's my platform now. I've got to get the messaging that guys, this is, you're missing the boat. You you know something, Paul, it's very interesting because you know, in terms of what I look at now and through learning is that the best thing that you can do for a child is make them comfortable in their own skin. And I think that is the key because you want them to develop. And then when they, it's time for them to leave the nest, you want them to be comfortable to go out into the world. And I think that's the best gift, not money, nothing else that they can feel good about themselves and approach life in, in, in a proper way for themselves. Right. And uh, I, I mean, to me, that's huge. It is huge. You know, you want to hold on to people you love with an open hand and eventually they fly. And that hand does not guide them through their journey. It provides them opportunities and nothing more. You know, and it's funny, my dad was, I love my dad. And yet, he was so excited that I was having positive experiences or positive results so that every time we would do something, he'd say, okay, what's next? What's next? And I'd already have the what next. And then one day I remember visiting with him and he, we had just, we did something and he, oh, I was selected as the U S Olympic coach of the year. And he said, what's next? And I said, dad, why don't we just sit in the moment and and say that's pretty nice and enjoy it and not worry about what's next can we do that he couldn't he couldn't comprehend that couldn't get his brain around it i'll tell you a neat story about my dad um my when i was growing up my dad would talk to us a lot about death not in a maudlin way but just helping us understand that that's part of the journey guys that's where you're going to end up and he loved tennis but he didn't he didn't he didn't play it really but he loved it he, when i was coaching world team tennis he would travel with us and he would give me serving stats and he was just adorable well we they dedicated the tennis courts the tennis courts here are the asiente tennis center and he passed away just before the dedication this is a true story you can't make this up so the day of the dedication my mother and my children and my sister came into hartford and we were going out to the courts and they had a, you know, a podium there for me to speak. And there was a thunderstorm. And so we waited. And then I got up to the podium and then rain stopped. The sun came out. I got up to the podium and there was a rainbow over the tennis courts. 
And the man, that guy's here. He found a way to get here. And that's the influence he's had on my life. And with Miles, with your dad, you know, there's a great Mark Twain quote or, or story. I hope that you experience this. And it was Mark Twain saying, when I was 15, I couldn't believe what a fool my father was. Yeah. When I was 25, I was amazed at how much he had learned in 10 years. I think that's a pretty cool uh, thing, you know, in its own in its own way. I hope you come to that place. But, uh, yeah. And just one more thing, and then I'll let Miles uh, sort of, you know, guide us here. But uh, the, whole, the, the whole Billie Jean King um, story on her development, and she basically, you know, owned tennis for herself. And that's how she became, you know, the great Billie Jean King. And mm-hmm. I think till the light bulb goes off in a player's mind, till they want to own it for themselves, not playing for the coach, not playing for the parents, playing for the player themselves, that, that's the whole difference in, in, in the whole ball of wax, really. It totally is, Bruce. But there's an additional piece to that for me. If we've had any success here at Trinity, it's because I don't teach an individual sport. I teach a team sport. So I want people to own their journey, but I want them to feel a tremendous shared commitment to each other. I teach this game like it's a team sport and that they go out to play for each other. I felt that when we played UVA, you have it UVA, Miles. There's that we, we're brothers in arms here. And, and it's got to be that. It's got to be more because then that prepares you more for life. Not that I'm an individual that's particularly talented in one shiny area, but I'm sharing this with the community, with my brothers. And imagine, you know, we have 11 different countries in our program. We have a guy from Lahore, Pakistan, and a guy from Mumbai, India. Their parents aren't even talking to each other. But we are teammates, and we need to care about each other. And so, yes, you need to own your own journey, but you need to share it with the community of people around you. And there have been so many stories over the 29 years here where the only thing that got a guy through a match was because he knew his teammate on the next court was fighting for him. That's a big deal. Yeah. You know, you'll, you'll be, I mean, I'm sure you've heard it hundreds of times, but you'll be, uh, you'll be delighted to hear the, some of the best stories through my times traveling with, with the team, with team USA, just the junior team. Some of the best stories were from the ex Trinity guys talking to us about those squads that they were on. You know, you had like Supreet and Simba who weren't necessarily like the greatest players on those teams, but they were like, Oh dude, we'd show up to a match and we'd know we had won before simply because of the way the camaraderie of the guys was forming into that match. And that, and they would try to explain it to us, you know, before we got out on court, I've, I was very lucky to have an extremely um, talented uh, recruiting class or year, if you want to call it of, uh, junior players with Nick Spazieri and Dana and Thomas Morgan. and Dylan and Ayush and Brian, <laughs> and I'm forgetting names, but you know, Morgan. And we, you know, we were, we were, um, we were, we were like a team within, 
within uh, the junior team of, and uh, you know, we would try to foster that, but I think that really is so important. Like you say, you can have a team of players who aren't necessarily the most talented. Um, but if they have that camaraderie and that, that, that true like family brotherhood and support for each other, it's incredible how many matches you can pick away. You know, it, a, a five, four match can really turn to a, to, you know, to a, to a solid win when, when you have that camaraderie, because when you're, when your guys are behind the glass and you can sense that your opponent is on a team that's just filled with superstars that are all sort of in, individual, they don't have that mesh. It's, it's an incredible feeling. Um, but, but to, but to foster that, you know, you say that over the years you have to adapt how you coach or how, how a company is led because you know, with time things change and you have to change your, your coaching style, but to foster the, the camaraderie, year after people, year, how do you keep that consistent? We have to read the room. So people ask me all the time, what is the single most important quality in, in a coach or a leader? I think it's empathy. You have to be able to put yourself on the other side of the desk and truly understand where that person is coming from. And to do that, you must evolve with the times. Listen, I'm, I'm going to be 70 years old. I, I don't care what Lady Gaga wore to the Oscars or what, you know, what's on Twitter today or TikTok, but I got to do all of that. Otherwise, I'm not relevant. I can't stay relevant with, with the younger people. And you have to stay relevant. You have to understand where they're coming from. And so you have to stay on the front of the surfboard and the waves are changing. And, you know, too many people sit back with their arms folded and say, oh, you come to me. I'm the, I'm the, you know, sage person. No, I'm coming to you. What drives you? What makes you tick? You know, and the other thing is trust. You, you have to have the trust of all of your players, but you have to remember that trust is a meal served with a teaspoon. It takes time. I don't have any expectations of our freshmen because we haven't developed the language yet. At our squash banquet this year, I said, guys, we spent a year together now. Now I understand you. Now we can talk and you will trust me because we've been through the, 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 the wars together. So it's all a matter of building that spider web of connectedness. And that's what I talk to companies about. I'll speak at a retreat. And the CEO will get up and he'll say, okay, this is what we did last year. Here are our quarterly earnings. This is what we've done. And this is our projections for the next year. This is what we want to do in the first quarter and everything. And I get up and I say, with all due respect, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I believe if you take care of your people, the other stuff takes care of itself. If you care about people, the scoreboard will show that. If you focus on the scoreboard, you're not going to be successful. I have never seen a player go on the squash court holding the scoreboard clicker. Somebody else is keeping score. You know, people talk about, you know, when we were winning matches, well, what will happen when you lose? I said, well, you know, when we lose, you know, frogs will fall out of the sky and the rivers will run red and the world will, nothing will happen when we lose. It will go on. The learning and the lessons, that's where it all gets built. Do you think it's harder today? I, I would think so. With all the social media, when you were having the, you know, your runs, 
you know, Twitter really wasn't as, you know, and, and Facebook, it was just coming in to play. So I think today to get that chemistry must be more difficult as a team than it was five, 10 years ago, even two years ago, maybe. I mean, things change. Bruce, it's a good point. I think authentic chemistry would be harder to create now. Listen, I, I think that social media is the seventh gate of hell. It is horrendous. Agreed. The stuff that, that is getting posted and and perfection, and we live in a world of snap moments, and everything is now and the here and now. There's no. Uh, it's really frightening. You know, I've got a. I've got a daughter. I we fight every day about her wanting to be on TikTok, and the images that she's hearing and hearing are really affecting her psyche and 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 some depression issues that just didn't exist before. So, yeah, I can't imagine when we were winning those matches if social media was all over us. I it would have been a much different experience. It was pretty pure and pretty special. I think and so. We were, I mean, I really we were in our own little bubble. Exactly, and and today it's it's different. So terrible, to, and everyone has a different. They're coming at it in a different, you know, from a different place. And I think there's, I mean, especially for the kids growing up today, I just yep. think it's such a negative, and there's much more damage done through social media than positive experiences yep. for them. You know, your friends are hanging out with other people. They didn't invite you. And now it's Saturday night. There's a party you weren't invited to, but there's pictures of all your friends there. That's got to be, it's terrible. It's Yeah, it's perfection. I'll take 80 pictures of myself. I'll find one that's okay. And that's what I'll post. Well, that's not me. Right. Not with all my wrinkles and warts. But, you know, it's interesting because it it ties directly to what you're saying about um, sort of about building that callus of, in your mind. And when you have the ability on social media, when let's say if social, if social media consumes, you know, if you look at at an average 15 year old's phone screen time, it's probably like four to five hours a day. I'm pretty sure it's, it's upwards of four hours a day, which is scary. So let's just say that they're like average, um, the time throughout the day that they spend reflecting on themselves, they're looking at pictures or they're, or they're something on social media, right? But what happens is once you're actually in the real world, all of a sudden, all that time spent on social media has nothing to do with the face-to-face. The only thing it's done is it's now allowed you to say, oh, shoot, oh, shoot, I don't know what to do. Like, uh, you know, I can't, I can't get through this difficult situation because you can't hide behind the screen. And I really do believe that there's a correlation between like, texting or uh, communicating via social media and then performing on a squash court or performing on a test or literally like such different things. I really yep. think that there's a strong correlation. But you're, um, you're right on. I, I totally agree. Um, it's concerning, you know, and, and trying to monitor what people are seeing. And, you know, we, we it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. You know, we we have all of our athletic teams and they're posting stuff and I'm following the teams and, you know, you know, we just uh, one of our teams just won a contest this weekend. I like it. Okay, great job. Way to go. But if a female posts something, I can't like that. Because that's skeevy. She might feel uncomfortable that a 70 year old man is following her. 
And so where do you draw the lines? It's all kinds of where we are is it's mind blowing. It's, it's multidimensional for sure. There's yeah. so many different, you know, there's and so I'm many different rabbit holes you could go guys, in. Stop posting that stuff. You're out with all your friends on a Saturday night and you're having a beer, which is what you should do as a college sophomore. And you're holding up a beer, but you're wearing a Trinity College squash shirt. You can't post that. That is, does not represent what we are. And it's just, it's nutty. No, you got to be very, very careful. I mean, yeah. I try, you know, to promote the podcast. You know, you're out there in, in, on Instagram or whatever. And uh, you have to be very cognizant of exactly what you post <laughs> yep. are you putting you know you're making sure that you're not being subconsciously being biased or things yep. like this and you want to try to please everybody so you don't post too much about one person or you don't you got to be like everything is a decision that it's crazy today it's like you have to be so careful on how you purport yourself yep. on, on social media um it's yeah. uh, it's really crazy. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. Um, I just wanted to, you know, I know it, you wrote, and it was a theme with your son throughout the book, Matthew. And I just pray that he's okay today. Um, Thank you. And, uh, but so in terms of, obviously, you know, you, you talk about he was your lion and you ran away from him rather than confronting it maybe in a different way. Not that it was in your hands to control that because, you know, addiction is just a different animal. But um, so how do you look at that, you know, process today? If there you know, maybe a player or someone, you know, who's involved with something that, you know, um, a similar type of addiction, maybe yeah. alcohol or whatever. How do you approach that? And I think our audience really would be interested in hearing what you've learned from that and how you would handle something like that, not necessarily with a family member, but, you know, a contact or a really good friend of yours today, you know? Well, you, you've got to be, you've got to, you know, as a parent and, and probably as a coach, and I see the two similarly, I think a coach is really like a grandparent. You're involved in the raising but they go home at the end of the day. Right. 24-7, right? And, you know, look, I think the most important thing for parenting is uh, omnipresence, being there and being consistent in your messaging. And I wasn't there. You know, I was too busy trying to be whatever the heck I was trying to be. Now, People have told me over the years, well, you're being too hard on yourself. You know, addiction is a disease. Matthew probably would have been an addict anyway. That's true. But I would be able to look in the mirror, at least if I knew that at every fork in the road, I was saying, Matthew, go left here, go right here. The outcome may have been the same, but I would have done a better job as a parent. And you know, I, I recently spoke at a at a company retreat and the CEO called me afterwards and he says, you're living a balanced life now. If you were living that life 30 years ago, would you have been as successful maybe as you you you, you have been, whatever success is? And I said, no, 
but who cares? There's a bigger scoreboard in the sky. And, you know, you don't take your banners with you when you go meet your maker. Or you don't, take, so, your, you don't take your money with you either. No. You know, it, it's what, right. So it's, these are things that are. Exactly. Just, so I have young men, I, you know, I have young men in the team that find themselves in difficult situations. And the, the, the same question that gets asked every time. They walk in the room, coach, I'm in trouble or I'm in a bind or whatever. The first question I ask is, did you do it? Or are you doing it? Own it. Number one, own it. Okay, let's deal with it. Tell me the truth and own it. And then let's go deal with the consequences of that. Second question I ask all the time is, what's the worst that can happen? You know, we're all actors in our own play. And we make we make ourselves these tragic figures and that what's going to happen is going to be so bad. And so it's not so bad. You know, you're going to be okay. But, you know, I'll speak to these financial industries and I'll say to these companies, what's the worst that can happen? You're going to get fired. Well, you're making $20 million a year because you have talent and skill and experience. You'll find another job. You'll be fine. You know, it, and so... The key here is go at the problem, run to the roar, own the situation, own your actions, stand up in the rain. It's okay. And you know something? When you do face it, you feel better about yourself. A hundred percent. Right? Once you you face it and you overcome that fear, as you discuss, Mm -hmm. it makes life for yourself just so much more palatable and 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 you feel much more comfortable about it and, and prideful and prideful i stood up to it i owned it <clears throat> you know it's interesting bruce <clears throat> every year we have a different focus in the program and and in writing this book i emailed former players on my teams over the 45 years and asked what was the message of your year what was the message of your junior year ironically this year I took a really deep dive into stoicism during COVID. I wanted to understand Marcus Aurelius and meditations and a stoic approach to life. And if you put it into a uh, summary, it's the serenity prayer. The serenity prayer is about stoicism, learning how to control what you can, learning how to accept what you can't. And asking for the wisdom to be able to tell the difference. Well, how ironic that that was our our theme this year. We finished third in the country in the dual season, or we go seated third. Three boys end up with COVID. One boy breaks his ankle at nationals. There's just some things you cannot control. And you've got to be able to accept that. And you know what? When you learn to accept that, the journey is much easier. Right. It, it sort of just takes off that ceiling of uh, the, the pressure is sort of off when you mm. when you accept that. Mm-hmm. And I think that also has been, a, you know, trying to, you know, eliminate the, the thought process in all your players of that type of pressure that is not necessary. Just go play and you do your best and, and see where the chips fall. And uh, I think that, you know. And that camaraderie that you tried and the chemistry you tried to build 
is uh, supporting that. And, uh, I, you know, it's given you just a great run and you're still doing it. And I, I see, you know, you can keep doing it. I mean, I don't know what yeah. keeps you <laughs> wanting to keep going and going, but, uh, you know, because there's a lot of plenty of coaches or whatever, or businessmen who have established what the type of career you have. And they're like, okay, I'm done, but you're not because no. this, you still want to teach help and, and guide. And it's, yeah. it's great. Well, you're nice to say that. Well, you know, Confucius says he who loves what he does can never find work. And so I've never worked a day in my life. I've had some bad days. Um, I, I, messages. My purpose is messaging. And so as long as I'm able to give meaningful messages, then I want to keep trying to do that. The thing of it is, I've also made it very clear to anybody I work with, do not keep me around because I'm a nice guy or I was successful. I don't come in. If I'm sitting in my office drooling on myself, just come in and end it for me, please. I don't want you to do that. I want to be here as long as I'm vital and viable. And if I ever become something other than that, I don't, I don't want that for the program. All right. Well, I'd like to welcome um, both uh, Manek Matur and Simba Muate, um, both integral uh, members of the Trinity Squash program during their historic runs. And we're going to start with Simba. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself um, prior to Trinity, and um, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, thanks, Bruce, for having us on. Um, I grew up in uh, Zimbabwe, in Harare, Zimbabwe, the capital city. Uh, played from the time I was six years old. Um, was lucky to be part of a good generation of players growing up then. Uh, a couple of names people may know, Jesse Engelbrecht and Pamela Saunders and all these Sean Johnstone. So we were all from there. Sean Wilkinson was now at Princeton, grew up playing with him, Busani at Amherst. So it was a good generation of players. Um, played normal junior squash like most kids internationally, just didn't travel a lot. And then had the opportunity to go to the World Juniors in 2000. Um, and uh, Zimbabwe in that particular event came 13th with some good wins against like India, um, couple of other countries as well so we're in New Zealand I think we beat as well so we weren't expected to do great and we did really well and out of that a lot of us got recruited to play um to think about playing over in the U.S. so I had an opportunity to look at that and so did a couple of my teammates so that's how um that started and I uh, took my time to get to Trinity um was recruited to go and then deferred for a couple of years and started as a 21 year old freshman uh, which I think was a good thing for me. Um, and then we went on a crazy run whilst I was there. And before I was there, there was a crazy run. And then I got there and it got even crazier. So that was my that was my quick snapshot of my career to this point. So, you know, in the, in the book, uh, Coach describes, you know, you know, your arrival on the scene. And uh, so how, how was that? Uh, yeah. I, I, I know it, it had to be a little bit of a culture shock, you know, uh, being in the United States, most likely for the first time. And, um, you know, a whole, a whole different environment, yeah. school. And yet now I'm coming, I'm, I got to play squash. Yeah. So, so what was your mindset when you first arrived on the scene? Yeah. So getting there, um, 
getting there was difficult just because I didn't know enough about the recruit. I didn't do a, a campus visit. I didn't do any of that. I was kind of just with coach. Luckily enough, it was out. I talked to coach on the phone. So talking to Paul Asiani on the phone, when on that's had that opportunity, would just understand. But it's basically, he makes you feel so at home, made my family feel comfortable with me coming over. And then once I uh, got on the flight, there's a couple of things I didn't know. So I didn't know it was going to be snowing <laughs> for starters. So I think I landed in January, mid-January. Um, so I didn't really have a jacket. I didn't have the right shoes or anything like that. So it was tough to, to, to come on campus and not have the right stuff. But luckily enough, there was a good community around that had things that I needed. And I remember getting my first North Face kind of jacket from like a second hand, like someone just gave that to me and it was really nice, but it wasn't like it is now. Like the kids now have a lot more opportunity to visit different campuses. We really didn't have that. We just had to go off coach's word um, and uh, and ended up being very good. And I guess once the mindset is more, once you get on campus, it's Trinity, right? Like they've been winning at that point for like six years straight, five years straight or something. And I just felt a lot of pressure to be good uh, and help the team. And I think that got to me a little bit. So I didn't have a great freshman year, but, um, uh, and I'm nowhere near as good as some of my other friends here, like Monarch and that. So like I was a bit more raw and I was supposed to be playing at the bottom of the lineup and it was difficult for me to even make the team. So, um, other than that, I thought academically it was manageable. Like I think growing up our academic situation and uh, these Commonwealth countries is pretty strong. So I wasn't struggling there, but it was more just the squash. No, I, and I think that's, uh, I think it's a common theme, even if you're not from, you know, outside the U.S., just for any player to come in and get the adjusted to college life. And uh, there's just a lot, it's a lot different. You're on your own. You don't have someone making your meals yeah. and whatever. So it's uh, it's a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. And the squash, you know, is sometimes hard to uh, manage, you know, considering all the other obligations that you have and your mindset. Yeah. And I think with the U.S. players today, you know, once you get to, you know, it's such a struggle to get there. And then once you get there, you're like, ah, you know, and sort of maybe settle a little bit. And the drive may be less, but, yeah. uh, you know, great coaches are able to, you know, bring out, you know, the talents and yeah. the uh, levels of, you know, all the different players. So, yeah. Uh, and Bruce, I would add on one more thing that I think like the, point, the importance of like financial aid for, for most of us, like at least for me was, was a driving factor. Like I felt like an obligation to the school because they were, in my opinion, were investing in me and were giving me a shot. And the fact that I had all this help, the financial aid and stuff made me want to give them back something that was like, almost felt like a bit more of a transaction, I think, but like, it's different when you want to improve in college as opposed to being like, that's it. And I'm done. I got there and I'm finished, but we wanted to get better every year. And it was, I was lucky to be around world-class players to be able to do that and a world-class coach. So great. Well, I, I think one of your uh, buddies is on the line. Maybe you want to introduce him. Um, yeah, well, ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, Monarch Mathura on the call here. Uh, quite simply, the best doubles player on the planet at the moment. Um, and a good friend of mine from Mumbai, India. So, Monarch, uh, I don't know if you want to say hi to the podcast world here. Hi there. What a kind of introduction. Um, thank you all for having me. This is, uh, this is exciting and uh, a great way to start my day. 
So, uh, you know, for the uh, audience who doesn't know of you, um, I'm sure majority does. Why don't you just give us a little um, pathway prior to uh, arriving in Hartford, Connecticut and uh, joining the uh, Trinity squash team? Sure, sure, sure. Um, my name is Manik. I grew up in Mumbai, India. Um, I was there right until I came to Trinity. Um, I went to a high school called Cathedral and John Conan and um, fell in love with squash after watching a PSA event at my home club, which was which took over the cricket ground. And at the time, as an eight, nine-year-old, I was really upset that cricket had to stop for this for the sport. Um, but then it forced me to watch it and I kind of gravitated towards it and fell in love and um, basically wanted to be one of the best juniors in the country um, when I was 10 or 11. And uh, long story short, I worked towards it. Um, I got up to maybe about two in the country and um, a couple of my friends were at Trinity at the time and connected me with coach and um, um, I set foot on campus um, when I was 17 in 2006. That, that's a, a nice little journey. And yeah. so um, why don't you tell us about your first meeting with the coach and uh, how that went, if you, re you could recall. Um, yeah, no, I think it's similar to, uh, to most. I think, you know, you, you just have no idea what to expect. You've spoken to this guy on the phone. This is pre-FaceTime, uh, pre-iPhone days. I've heard, heard his voice on the phone and uh, what always comes across is his compassion, warmth. And then when you meet him in person, it's only exemplified further. And um, uh, I remember walking into his office and um, he greeted me with open arms, not just a handshake. And he, he started calling me son from the first day. And, um, you know, a, another special bit was you know, at Trinity had these, these pyramids where you kind of sat around around the squash courts and you know i was 17 so intimidated by the history of the program and the players and um but i remember every single one of the guys on the team went out of their way to to introduce themselves to me and um be willing to help with whatever i needed uh especially um the american kids who would who you know had the cars and you know, had ability to take me to get a cell phone and things like that. So um, I think within the first hour or two hours, it just felt like a family away from home. And um, uh, I was very grateful for everybody's support, including coach. So Simba, um, so in terms of coaches, um, maybe tech techniques, um, I know he wasn't always, you know, one in terms of uh, managing your swing, but what were some of the things that he sort of keyed in on, um, you know, during your time with you? And um, he appears to be just very cerebral. And um, so what was something that maybe stuck with you that you bring forth now um, in, in your coaching um, today? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think that's the that is his talent. That the fact that he's not, and I'll say it openly, I don't think anyone would call him a real, like, actual in the quintessential term, a squash coach. I think he's way more of a mentor-like figure. Manages people very, very well. Manage people individually well, not as a team. Just more. Every single person has their own struggles and their own strengths. And I think he was able to like bring those out and like help 
people when they were struggling a little bit. I think for me, just like I wasn't, I think I was way not nowhere near as skilled as some of the other players. So like, it's just this ability of being tough. Like he always harkened back to like how I grew up, like, look, you're from Zimbabwe. Like there's no way this other kid who's from wherever, nicer part of the country is going to be tougher than you. We look at the group of us. We like embodied that a little bit when I was there, just being very street smart and like tough and fit and not, we didn't care how we won. We just wanted to win. And so, and he made it, he made it to where like, that was like our strength, just, just how tough and how tough of a background we have all come from. Like if you look at the home countries or some of this, that, especially my generation, it's pretty tough places in the world. You got Bogota, Colombia, you got, you got La whole Pakistan in there. You've got tough parts of England, like tough parts of South Africa. So it's not like, it's not, no disrespect, but it's not Greenwich, Connecticut or anything like that. It's a different spot, right? So that whole thing was a big part of how he coached. And I think I bring it to where I work now a lot. Like I, I talk to my kids a lot about that. Um, if you can get through what you're going through now, life's going to be easier like later on, but you have to get through what you're going through now. So, Yeah, I think he gave you, you know, and probably a lot of it was subconsciously. He gave you, you know, skill life skills that uh, you're still going to be able to implement, you know, in your adult life, which I think is one of the key things that he does for all his players. Monica, did you feel like that, that he gave you something different than a, a typical squash coach or I know you're a phenomenal doubles player. And uh, as uh, Simba says, the preeminent player in the world. So what did you learn? How did he elevate your game? You know, I think there's, this is this is such a long answer, and I can I can go on for for days about you know sport and how it's helped my daily life and things like that. But I think I think like I alluded to earlier, I think being able to handle myself under pressure and you know act on the fly um, quickly is something that um, I, I think I think he's helped me evolve and grow. Uh, in the best way possible, um, you know, whether it was as a teaching professional um, at the various clubs I worked at and now in real estate, I think, um, you know, being able to stay calm under pressure, stay in the center of the storm and, you know, like the book he wrote, like running into the roar and facing facing certain problems that you encounter. and uh, But most importantly, trying to be even keel and level-headed in these situations is something that... Um, you can't, you can't be, you can't really be, be taught. You have to go through these experiences and having a mentor like him to go through the reps through sport and having him kind of hold your hand and improve, um, as you handle these situations is something that, um, I'm so grateful for. I just have to thank both of you, um, for coming on today. I think this is going to be a real treat for our audience. So Simba. Would you like to close with any parting words for our audience about Coach A? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a tough, like, I mean, it's, I don't think anyone's, and I've said this in other areas, but I don't know if anyone's impacted U.S. squash more than him. So what I mean by that is if you look at the amount of players that stayed in the game and stayed coaching and stayed playing doubles or they're around kids, you know, and clubs and coaching and doing all that, like it still happens now. There's still kids that leave Trinity and that's their goal. They want to be squash coaches. I don't know too many others 
college programs that have that legacy of like people that played for him wanting to be like him in their own small way. And um, I think that's the biggest credit to him and the fact that like we want to help other kids just like we were helped growing up, but more importantly, just the fact that he still, I think, at least for me, I don't know if it's true for Monik, but it's an easy once a week, potentially twice a week call with him. And I've been away from Trinity for 15 years. So the fact that he still talks to me that much um, and I can call him at any time and I assume he does the same with a lot of people. And uh, But it's just incredible if you start to really kind of count how many people that could be. It's kind of crazy. So... I can't, I can't see another parallel, actually. To be honest, in college squash, I have feeling Mike weighs on that kind of wavelength a little bit, but Paul is a different tier when it comes to supporting people pre, post, and during your collegiate career. I don't think it gets better. So I wish him all the best. I hope he stays healthy, uh, still has fun doing it. And even though we, people caught up to us, it's okay to keep pushing. And uh, I wish him all the best. And I wish the team the best so and also yeah bruce thank you for having us so i appreciate you having me on the call uh washed up squash player like myself so thanks mate Uh, all right (laughs) thank you very very much simba i think your insights were right spot on and manic um i don't think we ever met in person but uh i'm so pleased that you were able to you know join us and share you know some time talking about uh, someone obviously who has played a huge role in, in in your life. So uh, thank you very much and um, best of luck. Thanks for doing what you do for squash, Bruce. I know uh, it's a lot of time and effort and um, such an honor to be here chatting with you. And um, I hope to do it again soon. Did you ever break the Diet Coke habit? Or you- no, I'm drinking it right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and it's like, guys, I, I, I'm trying. That's my addiction. So let me tell you something. I'm not going to mention any names, but, uh, you know, there was a squash parent and a friend of mine. And, um, you know, his son was a player, still is. And we were in Baltimore. And, you know, he was, he was like addicted to Diet Coke. And we left the Meadow Mill Club. He had this big glass or it was a plastic container of Diet Coke. He didn't finish it. There was snow on the ground. He put it in the snow. And the next morning when we went back to the court, yeah. he picked it up. and uh, It was still good. It was still good. I would do the same thing. <laughs> oh, uh, man. So uh, in that's terms funny. of and, I, and that's one of my things. I do like Diet Coke. And yeah. I try to go without it. But I mean, it does what it, it does for me. Yeah. yeah. So. Coach, there's something I've been dying to ask you about because it's something I've really started to apply to my to my life in college, especially. Um, but in your book, you talk about consistency, um, and you know, I sort of think of this equation where, like, consistency equals results, right? And if you're doing something uh, productive, that's and you're doing it consistently, you're going to get good results, or whatever your version of good is, but you're going to get productive results. If you're doing something bad, like a bad habit and you do it consistently, you're going to get bad results. Um, and I think I'd love to hear your viewpoint on how to work consistently 
and how the how consistency can reap results on a team and how when you have because I've felt it here you have some players who are at the courts at 6 a.m. and then at courts for practice and then they stay after practice and they're doing their stretching and their rollout and so they're very consistent with a with a schedule and then you have other other students or players who are extremely talented and maybe have a different viewpoint on how they train or whatever it may be. They're not as consistent, but sometimes you have to actually let them be slightly uh, less consistent or like the way that they are in order to get their best results. Like how do you build a team, maintain consistency, but also foster an environment where players who are a little bit more sporadic or more, uh, um, driven, right? Yeah. How how do you stay consistent in that sense? Well, first of all, an organization like a team has to embrace differences up to a point. Um, and yeah, some people look, you are what you do repeatedly. There's just no way around it. You know, you can't, you can't turn it on and off. And we live in a binge society that, you know, I'll, I'll uh, not study all all semester and then I'll take some study drugs and I'll stay up three nights in a row and pull all nighters that number one, that doesn't work. And it certainly doesn't work on the squash court, does it? So you are what you do repeatedly. And if you're consistent in your effort, um, you will get the most out of yourself. Now, there are people that have different agendas or different work ethics or different attitudes, and you have to be able to embrace them as well. Because the world, your neighbor's not going to have the same attitudes about life that you will in society. So you have to be able to accommodate the differences up to a point. If if their behavior or attitudes are so different than the culture of, of the program, then they might have to be told that there needs to be a change or then it might need to be addition by subtraction because that can then become cancerous. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, the old saying about cutting corners. Um, and I would say a person that's not consistent is cutting corners. I think that's fair to say. Um, maybe not their corners, but the, but the corners uh, that the culture of the program is trying to establish. And that, you know, if you, if you cut a corner once, it's really, really hard to do. To cut a corner twice is a lot easier. To cut a corner a third time, you're now a quitter. And you can't have people quitting on, on, the, on the culture of the program. So you got to be able to embrace the differences. You know, the, the flavor of the soup is determined by the number of different um, condiments you have in the soup. But the, you've got to embrace that, especially when you have the cultural differences that you have at UVA and that we have at Trinity. There's just different cultural attitudes about this stuff. But I do think that consistency is critical to success in life. And I think that um, that you are what you do repeatedly. And what I try to do with the college age guys is just one thing. Get up early. Just get up early. You know, and it's scientifically proven that when you go to college, your your chemistry changes and you guys become vampires. You're up all night hunting the prey, and then you sleep all day and you miss the beauty of life. If there's one thing that you need to think about is just get up early. 
And you, that's a consistent behavior that can have great benefits to your journey. Absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 you know, I agree. I think my, I mean, but everyone's different, Paul. I think, you know, there's nocturnal people that function mm-hmm. better at night and mm-hmm. there's people who, you know, function better yeah. in the morning. I'm a much more of a morning person than getting up 5.30 pretty yeah. much for the last 25 years of my, 30 years of my yeah. life. And, uh, you know, and that's when my best, you know, thoughts come into my head mm-hmm. and that's when I'm most effective in my yeah. work. And, uh, because, no question. You know, and by, you know, when I'm done with my day in the office, four thirty, five o'clock, I'm done. I've yeah. had enough. I'm done. I gave 150% effort during the day and mm-hmm. now I'm done. But, and then I go home yeah. and that's the problem. Then I eat, you know, take out the dog and I'm exhausted, but you know, yeah. so my, and I miss out on the, like the night activity, but you know, for me, you know, during the day, I'm much more, you yeah. know, a productive person. But as an educator, I'm trying to help prepare these guys for life. And you know what? If you show up late for a morning class and then you show up, you know, your professor is not going to be happy. You show up late for work. You might lose your job. So you got you got to learn to, you know, you got to you. There are definitely people that are more effective at night, but they got to live in a society that works pretty much when the sun comes up and the sun goes down. For sure. Yeah. I thought it just an interesting thing that um, you also talk about in terms of your players and uh, the way you manage, you know, if you're, if they should show up late to practice or they're not following, you know, the plan for the day, how, um, you know, extra running and push-ups, you were so on target with this that it really creates a negativity and you were providing them the all the you know the um, the physicality and the um, you know the building up their endurance by in, during the training. So the right. fact that they did something wrong, the additional running you didn't never did that. But I think a lot of coaches, it's the first thing they do. You know, they're not happy with the student. Well, you go you know do a hundred court sprints or you go do this and mm-hmm. or fifty push-ups. Right. And the way you thought about that is you don't want to put that, you know, your, you know, the, put your lungs when you're in the fifth game and you're, 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 you can't feel your legs. You don't want that negativity drawn in from, oh my God, this is because I, you know, I had to do all this. I was punished and you don't want that to sneak in. And I thought that was a very interesting point. And I would say that it's a very contrarian way to look at it as sure. opposed to most of the, the people who coach in this country, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I think we exercise for healthy life, right? So if my method of motivating you is to punish you, you're going to exercise out of punishment. And now you're a 45 year old guy. You think, you know what? I need to lose some weight. I'm worried about my heart, but why would I go punish myself rather than I get to go exercise now. This is good. And I, so I will never use exercise as punishment. I just, I, I don't. I thought that was just a, a very, you know, insightful, you know, way you approached it. And early on, I mean, I don't think people were even, you know, you were thinking so out of the box with a lot of these, you know, issues, you know, as being a coach. And I think th- that's why this book, I think, is so key to, you know, junior players really absorbing some of the stuff you're talking about 
And, you know, and, and it's just really, it's a shame that some of this, you know, is not implemented on a more uniform basis throughout the world. And uh, so I think well, you were very, you. you were very ahead of your time with a lot of this. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Coach, what was a failure of yours as a coach? Many, um, many, many. One, like, do you have one that resonates with you that, every, like, think maybe before you start with a with a team of young players, like you you, rem- you remind yourself of, and you're like, okay, I learned from this, and I, you know, I want to implement this, or I don't want to implement that. Yeah, the most important thing I've learned. And I try to remember it all the time. Sometimes I lose myself in it. Is I'm just a vehicle of messages. And there have been times where what we were doing, I had an ego attachment to. Shame on me. You know, a coach should be like a referee or an umpire. You know they're there, but they're not, they're not what's important. And You know, I learned this from coaching world team tennis. There wasn't one person in the stadium there to see me. They came to see James Blake and Monica Sellis. And so when I'm dealing with the guys and I'm happy with them or unhappy with them for their lack of effort or commitment, it's never going to be about me. And there have been many times in my career where I made it about me. You know, you... You see, it's a funny thing, coaching. You know, I'll see my colleagues, and I have a colleague that's a dear friend, let's say, and his team goes in season. He's a different person. His eyes look different. His his approach to the day is different. It's like, why? Because all of a sudden, winning and losing is what you're going to measure yourself by. Oh, man missing the boat. It, it, that's not, I'm going to get to coach tomorrow if we win or lose. And I get to coach more if we lose. But when you attach your ego to this stuff, it's crippling and it's crippling for the kids. And so I've made that mistake many times. I recently had an email from someone who said, oh, I'm a friend of a person who was an assistant coach of yours at West Point. And I immediately sent him an email and I said, please tell him I apologize because he would like me more now than he knew me then. I don't like the person I was back then because I was doing it to fulfill some sort of an ego need in me. You know, you'll talk to coaches and you'll say, who are you playing tomorrow? Or who's, who's your team playing tomorrow? And he'll say, oh, I'm playing Amherst at seven. You're not playing. No. When, you know, I, we, we, it's all about we. And it sounds so trite, but that's the biggest mistake I've made along the way. You know, my daughters will say, daddy, you're famous. No, I'm not famous. (laughs) There's nothing special about me. (laughs) And, you know, but yeah, there were times where I thought I was really famous. That's terrible. So um, just getting back to world team tennis, do you think there's a place for world team squash? Could that ever evolve here in the U.S.? I wish it would. I think Billie Jean King's a genius. I, I, I consider her a friend. We talk regularly. And um, 
She changed the scoring system to make it more interesting and bring in a different kind of a spectator. I think squash is a really hard sport to follow and watch. I think if we had a different scoring system, I th- I think it's one of the reasons we're not in the Olympics. It's I agree. Tough. I mean, you know, I was the national coach. There were times where I just I can't watch any more squash. I'm going to throw up. It's but with world team tennis, you were always engaged. You were always into it. It was co-ed and mixed and and the score and there was never a knockout punch. It was sort of like a running score. I would love to see something like that in squash. I think it would be great. And now with the advent of the outdoor court and the, you know, a stadium can be built for, you know, that's user-friendly for the fans. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but I, I mean, I just think it, in terms of growing the game and because, you know, it's getting better slowly. I think pre-COVID, there were times where it may have been some stagnancy within squash. I think we came out of this strong. And I think the um, advent for at least U.S. squash, now the new um, Spectre Center, I think we're maybe on a better pathway. But, you know, in terms of really growing and getting, you know, spectator attention to the sport and, uh, you know, more money for, you know, in terms of professional, you know, squash players, because, you know, I mean, and that's a whole other thing. I was going to ask you also about in terms of a five setter in, in tennis versus, you know, a five gamer in squash, how much, you know, calories are burned and how much energy is, is used. It, it, can we equate that? But I just think that we're, we're, we need to figure out how to continue on growing the sport. I think in terms of there's a lot of club squash now for, say, like the Michigan of the world. When if I think one if they convert Michigan Duke to a, a varsity sport, I think would be amazing for the growth of the sport. Having like you know, I mean, and the competition and the people and the students that they would attract and the players. I mean, I just think it's really on the precipice of doing great things. I don't know how it'll get there, but I mean, I just think we can have this sort of an explosion in the next five to ten years on the growth, and I think. Having more, and it would bring parity. It would no longer be just an Ivy League or, you know, or the top 15, you know, programs in the country, but it would be much more universal. And I think the competition would skyrocket. And I think it would be a really, you know, positive um, pathway for the sport. I don't know how you think in terms of the growth, if that is, you know, um, something that you think is down coming down the pike. Well, I do know. Because of my role with U.S. Squash, um, I was actually talking to Kevin about this this morning, Kevin Klipstein, that, you know, it's about access and about giving people an opportunity to be involved in this game. And I think the base of the pyramid needs to be wider. We spend all of our time focusing on the, the point of the pyramid. And, you know, there should be gazillions of people playing out there who, you know, really are not going to ever play at the U.S. Open. But, you know, I think, um, and more co-ed, more people, and, and you know, our game can be handicapped. You know, I think that's a great thing. If I go on the court with Miles, you know, at this stage of my life, 
Uh, Miles is going to be at minus 11. I'm going to be at plus nine. And he has to hit every ball into the forehand box. There's ways of equaling it out and creating more <laughs> access. And, and, um, and I think we need to be more creative and continue to work to find those things. My big concern for squash in America today is it's too much focused on junior squash. I think that should be one of the things that we do. I think we need to have more adults playing squash, more, you know, everybody's freaking out about pedal and pickleball and, and, and a diminishing of the squash community. Um, but it is a great game, but I think we need to be creative and find ways that it's more user-friendly. Um, Hardball's provided a, a another area for older players. And now we have different types of squash balls. And, you know, I, I think we need to be 100% user-friendly and, and come up with a better way of broadcasting it and, and extending it out. But it, ha it needs to grow. It needs to get away from the good old boy country club mindset. You know, when I first started coaching squash, people would sit in the stands and they wouldn't clap, partially because they were afraid they were clapping at the wrong time. I want them to come to a squash match and make it feel like it's a basketball game. And nobody better complain to me about the noise. Larry Bird didn't complain about people waving behind the basket when he was shooting foul shots. If you, if you keep it that way, people are going to be less likely to come to the game. Pack the house. Encourage people to cheer appropriately, but make some noise, damn it. And I think we need to be thinking in those ways. And you've got great minds out there like John Nimick, you know, great tournament promoter. And we need to, in the college game, I just think we need to grow it. And I think we yeah. need to be creative. And Billie Jean King was brilliant <clears throat> in that regard. Yeah, sure. I think... I've talked to Bruce about it in um, Timmy and Spencer and, and some other folks on, on previous shows, but I sort of have two, two like attitudes towards it. One is what you were just saying, like, let's grow it. Let's try to, you know, in the college scene, let's get, I mean, to be completely honest, like let's, let's have spectators allowed to drink and like, and whatever it may be betting or anything that like yeah. actually stimulates people's mind because at the end of the day, we have to be realistic. Like I know how the game works. We all know how the game works. They don't, they come and they're like, wow, this is really intense. Cause everybody's quiet. And like, that's kind of cool. But at the same time, I don't really know what's going on. So like, where's my place that, that suspense of the game where it's a massive rally and you see the ball flying all over the place. Like we can exploit that with having fun in, in other ways as well. And then, you know, then the game can grow. So that, that I, I think like, that's one aspect that I have uh, one attitude I have towards it, but the other attitude is also like, I, I really think that, I, okay. I was lucky enough to grow up going to a club in Boston um, where guys had no idea what they were doing, but they were getting on the court, they were playing, they enjoyed the workout and then they'd come off and they'd have beers and talk. And, you know, I, I, I grew up with that my whole life. I really think like you were saying, if we can introduce it to adults, young adults out of college or, or older, there's going to be an environment of like, this is a fun game. It's challenging, mentally challenging and physically challenging. 
and it's not something that you have to necessarily be it's not like basketball or soccer or lacrosse where it's like super tasking, but that like intermediate squash where it's you're sort of standing on either side of the court, you're hitting back to back and forth. People like that. And that's where it can grow because once they start playing, then they'll introduce you to their kids. And all of a sudden it will just be like 10 X the players that we have. And when there's more players, there's more or there's less people that stand out. And when there's less people that stand out, that's when it gets selective. And that's when it's really going to get good. It's a tough thing being, you know, playing the sport, Um, but I'm proud of it. And, and, and I love the community. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And I think what we need to emphasize is it's one of the quicker workouts in a short period of time than other sports. And it's something you can do alone. I think the idea of just going out and rallying or having a ball machine and getting a good lunchtime workout, I think that should be encouraged as well. Um, It's one of the things that makes our sport different. And so I, I think smarter minds than mine will think of more creative ways, but I think we need to grow the sport and it's a good sport. And, but you know, it's an interesting thing during COVID we would have these college squash calls, Zoom calls, and they would go around the room and they'd say, what do you miss the most? And it was interesting because it kind of summarizes my attitude. You know, all the coaches would say, oh man, I missed the game of squash. Really missed the game of squash. I missed the workout. I really miss it. And when they got to me, I said, I don't miss squash. I miss the people. I miss the boys. And that's what drives me. I could be coaching volleyball. Doesn't matter to me. I'm just getting to work with people through through a sport. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Um, so I, I had another thought. Um, do you think the U.S., you know, the pros, the young pros coming out, you know, the Lovejoys now, the Brownells and, you know, Team USA, do you think in five to 10 years they could be, you know, I mean, the women have made, you know, a little bit more progress, obviously. Um, I mean, you know, Amanda, Olivia Factor, Blatchford, you know, Sabrina, and the list, you know, goes on. Um, but the men's haven't, you know, haven't made that breakthrough. What do you think it would take? What do you think it takes to get to that level of, you know, the the Egyptian teams, the, you know, some of the English players. And so, because they seem to dominate and the, the Americans have not broken through yet, especially on the men's side. What do you think it would take? What do you think it's going to take to get them there? If it's possible. Well, I think it's important to recognize if you look at the juniors, okay, you've got, you've got the junior women ring two in the world or thereabouts, very high. Junior men, also very high. Then what happens? We go to college. Those players don't. Those four years are a big gap of time. So what we're trying to do as a U.S. organization is keep the players more engaged during the four years so that it isn't the great American wasteland. Encouraging them and their coaches to let them go play a PSA event or a local tournament but not take prize money. Stay engaged so that when they're getting ready to graduate, um, they can um, 
see college, uh, see pro squash as a viable option because that window closes. So those four years are the pivot time with regard to the men, right? And that and that's something that we're trying to methodically um, close the gap on. And I think you know it, it's a critical time. The the first four years or so, we'll get to know how how these guys are going to do. They're good players. They're really putting in the effort. They're down training with Ang Bang Hee at the training center. And 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 uh, they've got this great facility and a great Bridget's an amazing professional uh, physical trainer. So we're providing them the opportunities and we'll see how they do. I think they have a very good chance. But it's those four years that that makes the difference, at least from ranking to ranking. Why? Why all of a sudden is, you know, somebody untouchable, whereas in the juniors, you were right there with him. And that's that's what I see as the difference. On the women's side, you know, it's this is a team to celebrate. These these women have have a real chance to continue making a mark on the world of squash. And, uh, you know, I, I would recommend with regard to the women's national team, let's just focus on now. This is a celebration time, and let's hope that they can continue. You know, it's tricky on the international level because there's only three matches played, right? And you could win a match with two good players. When Egypt won their first world championship, I was in Cairo coaching the U.S. team. And I was sitting with my friend David Pearson, and I was trying to convince him not to jump off of a hotel because England had just lost to Wales. Wales had two players. I mean, so it's tricky. Our women are really, really, really good. But if they run into a buzzsaw with two good players, anything can happen. One person has a bad day and, you know, who knows? So this is a women's team that is something we should be celebrating. And for young girls, they're aspirational. And let's not worry too much about the future for, for women's squash. On the men's side, I'd like to focus more on the future. I think they have a good chance to really uh, continue to grow. No, I do think you know, they're making progress for sure. And yep. I think the mindset is like, now it's our time now. And I yep. think they're very, very focused and training, obviously, very hard. And yep. uh, I think they have the right mindset and uh, to lead us into this, you know, next yep. five, ten year, um, you know, platform um so uh miles i mean i i know coach you probably we could probably sit here all day now <laughs> with you i know you got things to do uh miles is there anything else you'd like to bring up with the coach before we yeah, uh, i mean i mean I, I i've loved this call so far you know it's crazy that we are all sitting on screen here i'd love you know bruce and i've been talking about ideas of having round tables or something where we can actually sit face to face with everyone in person because i i really miss that you know and i guess one of the no absolutely one of the greatest things about squash and i'm so lucky that i got to live through it is that you meet some incredibly um wonderful i i know you've been Hello? People. Um, sorry, sorry. You can repeat it. I'll start again. One of the greatest things about squash, um, and I'm so lucky that I got to experience it, is that you really do get to share face-to-face, real-time journeys with 
incredibly accomplished, but also just wonderful people, you know, and that's special. Unlike other sports to, to be able to train with you and to be able to train with Thierry and to be able to train with Mark now. And I mean, I could probably name like 20 people from the squash world who have seriously impacted my lives. Some of them never picked up a squash racket, but were in the squash world. You know, I know Bruce, you've played, but like Bruce well, is one I, of them. I picked up a racket a couple of times, but that's exactly. It. <laughs> I'm just a squad. Like the, that, that, that's what matters most to me. And it goes back to what you were saying, coach. It's, it's the relationships. It's, it's the life lessons that you've learned over the years. And it's the way it's shaped who you are as a person. And I, I'm so happy that we've got to speak to you today. And Bruce, if you have any last things that you want to ask, please fire away. But I, but I do want to make that clear. Touch on all the, you know, the tremendous, you know, players and people that have come through your program. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I know because of the environment, you you know, and the atmosphere that you created when they're during their times, you know, their four years with you. Um, I mean, it's just an incredible, I can just imagine like an alumni dinner and having the like everybody, you know, come and it must be so much fun and the stories and the camaraderie. I mean, you don't lose you don't lose that. I mean, these are your friends for life. And uh yeah. no, and they call all the time or I reach out to them all the time. I make it a point every day to reach out to one of them over the 45 years just to see how they're doing. And uh you know, I get, that's the paycheck. That is the paycheck. I get to go to weddings and, uh, you know, and births and I'm a godfather for a bunch of their kids, which I said, you know, you should really ask somebody that has more money than me. But mm-hmm. um, that's the paycheck. How lucky, you know, I am to have spent time with them at a critical time in their lives and and beyond. You know, we really are very active in trying to help them get jobs. Because to me, it's a spider web of connectedness, and that web will never be broken. And um, it always saddens me when I feel like maybe I could have, I could have worked with a person in a way that would have been more in line with what they needed at the time, but I just didn't sense it or I didn't read it correctly. But but we have a lifetime to to fix that, right? And um, and so I try to stay in touch and they, they do a beautiful job. And, you know, it's funny, like we had the NESCAC championships here. The NESCAC is our little conference, Williams and Amherst and, you know, Bowden. And so we were playing in the finals against Bowden and it was an incredible match. Doug Canigliaro was playing against the guy from Bowden and they were going back and forth, match point, match point, back and forth. And everybody was totally into it. And when the match ended, our team stormed the court. And I was getting emails and texts and messaging from all over the world from alums saying, is that where we are today? Are we celebrating NESCAP championships? And it was because they remember winning national championships. And I said, yeah, that's where we are today. And if you were here and you saw how much these guys were pulling for each other, it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, uh, a C division or a NASCAR championship or national. It's all the same, guys. You know, I, you know I, I, that's a great point because it's all relative. I mean, the camaraderie to, to storm on a court after that 
is no different than a national, you know, vying for a national championship. It it's was just, wonderful. It's just a process and, yeah. and, and pulling and Doug, you know, working hard may not always be in the starting lineup, but working so hard, giving all his efforts and, and, and the other players know that. Yeah. And, and screaming, both teams screaming at the top of their lungs. It, it's all the same. And in the end, as Metallica says, it doesn't really matter. What really matters <laughs> is the shared journey and the time that we shared. Yeah. I think we can Absolutely. end on that note, Coach, because, I mean, that is so true. And uh, because 99% of the, the guys are not playing professional squash when it's all said and done but you set them on a pathway for life. And I'm sure it's a Jewish term, nachis, that you get from watching them succeed. But bringing, you know, squash teaches you a lot on how to manage your life outside of squash. And I think you've given these kids incredible platforms. And I mean, I've, I've known you, you know, obviously, you know, through the years, but not in this regard. And you just set the bar so much higher than I could have ever imagined because I've never had a conversation like that with you in this length. And um, I am so, and I, I know you don't like to, for people to throw accolades at you and things like that, but you handle yourself so well and so knowledgeable and so spot on. And uh, I know mom. Well, I'm, <laughs> Well, I'm the lucky one, guys. I'm the lucky one. And uh, this was a wonderful 90 minutes, and I really appreciate your time, and I value it. Miles, you're, you're mature beyond your years, and Bruce, you're young beneath your years. And, uh, and I hope that we, you know, our journeys cause us to bump into each other again. Miles, we'll see you on the courts next year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and guys, thanks very much. This was this was super fun. I just want to mention one other thing um, that you do. You are a part of um, Goodman Speaker Management Company, and that you do a you know a lot of public speaking in a lot of different areas. So, um, if you are interested, anyone out in you know our audience, if you'd like to bring Paul to an event and uh, have him share, you know, and I'm sure Paul, you know, you could tell him. You know which direction you want to go. You're so well versed, and um, and it's not all about squash. It's about life. It's really just life. And uh, yeah, well, squash is just the vehicle, right? And um, yeah, if anybody's looking for someone, I'll you know I'll speak at children's birthdays, bat mitzvahs, whatever you need. But uh, you do but it's, ball? You do <laughs> Yeah, I don't do that, but. Uh, Anyway, guys, thanks so thank very you so much. much. And yeah. Paul, thank you, Paul. Go, yeah. And we'll speak soon. And thank, thank you. you again. Thanks, thank guys. Bye bye. you for listening to the two dot chronicles hosted by bruce huberman and miles mcintyre as themselves the show is produced and engineered by me james spavelko theme song and incidental music created by spavelko music services have a question suggestion or just want to say hello drop us a message at 908-977-6481 or send us an email at two dot at gmail.com 
That's T-W-O-D-O-T-M-E-D-I-A. It may be featured in a future episode. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to The Two Dot Chronicles. We upload a new episode every month. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts.